0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can play them on your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever you got. And here is an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get some science fiction classics like Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke or The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams or Neuromancer by William Gibson. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a little kickback. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people
1: you and i have a friend in common every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful jake stated
2: what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really
0: there and now here's your host Bradley Steve.
1: Just one person at
0: just one time. Right,
1: <laughs> right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is the digital audio experience. This is the attempted at communication. This is the burgeoning literary media empire. Thank you for tuning in. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Ryan Boudno. He is the author of the story collection The Littlest Hitler, a novel called Misconception. And now he is the author of the new novel Blueprints of the Afterlife, available from Grove Press. Uh, This was the February selection for the Nervous Breakdowns book club, the TNB book club, and it's a pleasure to have him here on the program today. Uh, Ryan and I are going to be talking in just a moment. But before I get there, I want to discuss briefly the naked lady in my wallet, the nude woman. Uh, And Have I talked about this before? I'm concerned that I might have already mentioned it. I can't remember. Uh, But anyway, I have a naked lady in my wallet, which is to say she is part of the actual wallet, like one of the inner flaps of my wallet contains a painting I guess you could say of a nude woman an attractive naked woman and uh, actually she's in kind of a negligee she's she's like wearing a pink negligee but it's see-through if that makes any sense and you can see her breasts you can see her her bosom <laughs> and she looks like an old pinup girl she looks like barbie or some sort of swedish beauty and so the story of how this uh happened is kind of funny like a, a few months ago I'm out with my daughter and we're at the mall and we're doing some mall walking, which if you're a regular listener of this program, uh, you're aware of my tendency to mall walk. You understand that I do uh, mall walk with some degree of frequency, particularly last fall when my uh, daughter had just turned a year old and was napping a lot and was easily entertained, uh, you know, by the mall and would sit in her stroller. So uh, as the story goes, I'm at the mall with my daughter and I needed a new wallet. And usually when I would go to the mall to mall walk, uh, I didn't even shop. I just sort of walked around and I was kind of there for the visual stimulation. But on this occasion, I had an actual retail strategy and I had a reason for being there. And I had been in need of a new wallet for quite some time. And I had decided uh, that today was the day. And so I went into the department store, pushing the stroller with my daughter Uh, in the stroller, and I believe it was the weekend, because I remember it being extremely crowded. Uh, It was like approaching the holidays, there were hundreds of people in this department store, it was pure retail chaos, and uh, you know, just generally speaking, you have to understand what it's like to be at a mall in Los Angeles on the weekend. Uh, It tends to be crazy. So I'm standing in line to buy a wallet, and uh, because the wallets are kept inside of a glass case uh, where the cash register is, I'm basically... Standing in the checkout line, waiting to uh, select and then purchase this thing, so it's a, it's a busy day and it's like a ten minute wait. Uh, it's like a line of people, eight you know eight people deep, and uh, I finally get to where I'm second in line, and at this point, my daughter just completely loses it, just has a total meltdown, and uh, is is crying and throwing a fit in her stroller and is uh, inconsolable. And I'm trying to quiet her down. I'm trying to uh, mollify her, but she wants none of it. And uh, I'm crouching down at her side, uh, you know, trying desperately to talk her off the ledge. And uh, it is at this point that the guy at the cash register sort of clears his throat and is like, can I help you, sir? And so uh, just as he says this, my daughter starts shrieking even louder. And I've got like six people in line behind me. And I find myself uh, in, in something of a panic saying, you know, I need a wallet and I want that one. And I'm pointing uh, suddenly and, and randomly at the glass case just at a, at, a, at, a, at a wallet because I'm flustered. And I'm pointing at this brown leather wallet, which, uh, which looks nice. It looks normal. It looks simple. It's just a brown leather wallet. That's all I wanted. That was my entire mission. So the guy gets it. Uh, he rings it up. He puts it in a box. I hand him my credit card. He swipes my credit card, and uh, my daughter is just shrieking the whole time. And uh, the guy gives me the bill to sign, and it turns out that the wallet is about three times as expensive <laughs> as I imagined it would be. Uh, it was an expensive wallet for my taste, anyway. And so uh, you know, I wound up just paying because my you know my daughter's freaking out. And, uh, making a tremendous scene. And, uh, I just said, fuck it. You know, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to make the guy return the thing. You know, there's pe- there were people waiting in line behind me and, uh, I didn't want to you know, in- inconvenience them, uh, any further than I already had with this, uh, shrieking child. And I just couldn't subject them to, you know, to anything further. And I felt, uh, quite frankly, that I needed to get out of there just to be polite and save some face Uh, You know, I needed to extract myself from the premises. So I leave the department store uh, with my Wailing Daughter in tow. And I have my new wallet. And I'm a little flustered. But, you know, I survived. And I go home. And it's only then, later in the evening, that I actually open the wallet and inspect it. And realize that there is indeed a naked woman inside of the wallet. Which, in a strange way, has created... Uh, you know, real internal dilemmas for me. Like on the one hand, I'm, you know, I'm just not the kind of guy who gets a wallet with a naked woman in it. I'm just not. Uh, if you know me at all, uh, you know that that's just not me. I guess that's just not my style. Uh, it's just like if, if given the choice, that would not be the wallet that I would choose. You know, it just feels a little bit uh, too Ed Hardy or something. I don't know how to describe it a little bit too much just for me it's not a i don't know how do you you know how do you define that but i I don't think i would pick that one uh but then the question became you know do i really drive all the way back to the mall and return this thing just because of some naked woman like am i am i really that prude is this really a deal breaker am i am i really that troubled by a naked woman in my wallet you know it's not like everyone's gonna see it and even if they do who gives a shit it's a naked woman It's America. So then I started thinking, like, maybe it's a good thing that I have this woman in my wallet and that I'm sort of outside of my comfort zone. You know, maybe this is a body shame issue. It's just a pinup, girl. Get over it. You know, it's like, why was I even debating this with myself? So long story short, I go through this kind of like 360 degree thought cycle and I wind up keeping the wallet, which I still have to this day. Uh, but what happens is that I find myself preemptively explaining the naked woman whenever I'm out in public and it comes time to pay for something, uh, you know, especially if I'm with a friend and especially if I'm with a female friend and I open the wallet to pay for something, I tend to be worried that my friend has somehow seen the naked woman. (laughs) And so I feel compelled to kind of just come out with it and to show the naked woman to whoever, you know, whoever I'm with and tell them the origin story so that, so that it's clear. Which is funny, but it's also kind of neurotic, and it gets repetitive. But at the same time, uh, I don't want them to to be wondering about it, you know? I don't want them to see a flash of it, nor do I want them to see me, like, hiding it and and have to sit there wondering why uh, I have a naked woman in my wallet that I don't want anyone to see. So, I don't know. I guess I feel compelled to give people context. And uh, the same thing goes when I'm at a restaurant. You know, just as an example, like if we're seated and you know we're having lunch and then the waitress comes by with a bill and she's standing over me waiting for my credit card, I will find myself hiding the naked woman <laughs> when I open my wallet, which, you know, becomes sort of cumbersome. But I, you know, what am I supposed to do? I guess you just flash the naked woman and let people deal with it. I need to relax about this. But uh, it creates some stress in my life. And I wonder why I give a shit about it. Of all things You know But I do sit around Like thinking to myself uh, You know What is my daughter Going to think about this When she gets older You know Is this somehow uh, Going to affect Her self-perception Or her perception of me Will this be an embarrassment Will her friend see it uh, And think I'm some kind Of sick pervert Who's to say I'm probably overthinking it I'm uh, almost definitely uh, But at the same time I'm sort of resigned to it This is my burden I'm going to keep it and uh I'm gonna I'm gonna own it and I'm gonna continue on. And I should also add that I don't have a name for her yet. I have yet to officially name the nude woman in my wallet. So if you have any suggestions, uh please feel free to email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com or you can tweet at me at other I'm taking suggestions.
0: Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature
1: go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line so enough of that uh enough of the naked woman in my wallet let's get on with the program shall we uh why don't we all sit back relax and enjoy this conversation with ryan Boudno, the author of the tmb book club's february selection blueprints of the afterlife Okay. And so can you describe like like give me like a visual read on your uh, surroundings? No, okay. I'm in my um
2: my library, which sounds kind of grand, but it's the smallest room in the house. <laughs> um it is a uh it's one of the bedrooms upstairs uh where I live and um after I um the publication of my first book um with a little money that I made off that book, I um hired a carpenter to uh build some built-in bookcases and so I'm surrounded by my bookcases right now the, um, and I, I helped design like what they were going to look like and everything and um, I'm, I'm quite proud of them actually the, uh, so on my left is all the fiction and it kind of wraps around to the right side of the room um, and then I have non-fiction as well on the right and then I have a bunch of DVDs um, in a corner kind of shelf space um I have a couple guitars out uh a bunch of pictures of my family um let's see i have my uh icelandic manual typewriter uh, that i got in Reykjavik last summer it's one of my most prized possessions
1: oh wait you were in, um, you were in iceland
2: yeah yeah i went to iceland in uh, august my wife
1: just just for fun yeah. just for vacation
2: yeah, I mean, I've been obsessed with Iceland since I was about eighteen, and it was kind of a fulfillment of a lifelong dream. I um, yeah, I've read a lot of uh, about the history of Iceland and some of the literature, and uh, I've just been entranced by that country.
1: Why? Um, like, what is it specifically? Um,
2: I- you know, I don't know. So what, the way it started was when I was 18, I um was working in a used bookstore in in my hometown, which is Mount Vernon, Washington. And um uh, I was shelving books one night and I came across a book like a photography book about Iceland. And I, you know, up to that point I had like I didn't have any opinion about Iceland at all, but I opened this book and the um the photographs were so incredibly striking to me that the landscape was um just so beautiful i I don't think I'd ever seen a place look so gorgeous before and um and then I read a little bit about you know what the people of Iceland are like and what the culture is and it just sounded like an incredibly cool place to to go and and incredibly cool um people there and and then uh you know around that time that was when the sugar cubes were like playing on Saturday night live around that era. And, and then Bjork of course took off (laughs) and, uh, and I'm a big fan of her music. And, um, and then over the years, there've been a number of other Icelandic bands like Sigur uh, who, who've come out, who just make this incredible music that I love. And, uh, so I uh you know over the years you know started re- reading about the history of the country and learning about you know things like the the early parliament and and um you know different writers like Halder Laxness, who's their their Nobel laureate and um and so the more I got into it I uh I started seeking out you know Icelandic people I I uh Guest edited an issue of a literary journal called Hobart um, several years ago, and so I reached out to the Icelandic Writers Union um, and asked them for submissions, and they sent a couple my way, and um, one of them was this guy, uh, this poet named Sion who uh, um, I guess his claim to fame is that he writes lyrics for Björk. And um, what's his name? Nominated for his name is Sion, It's S J O N with a little accent over the O. Okay. Um, And he uh, he was nominated for an Oscar for the lyrics of "Dancer in the Dark." And anyway, so he he uh, he sent me this story, and I published it in this journal. And then you know, years passed, and then finally, I get a chance to go to Iceland, and we we ended up hanging out with him and his wife and some other people for a while there. And, And so Iceland, you know, more than fulfilled all my expectations and all. The, the dreams I'd had I mean literally like there I've had a series of dreams set in Iceland over the years and they have been and they're incredibly emotional dreams I'll wait like there have been times when I've woken up crying after a dream that I've had about Iceland. Jesus, it just something about it is so strikes me as so profound. I don't know. I must. It must be like I, you know, I was an Icelander in a previous
1: life. Well, that, or something. Th- that's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. Is like, do you believe that? Because like, I, I kind of feel like sometimes people have these really strong connections to places that they haven't even been to in this life. And yeah. it's almost like you know, there's something eerie about it. Like, do you feel like that you know, reincarnation is a thing, and, and maybe you lived there in a past life, and that's why you have such strong feelings?
2: No, I don't really believe in reincarnation, but I do believe that, like you said, that you can have strong connections to places. Um, and uh, what, for whatever reason, I don't, I don't even really care what the reason is. But it's, you know, for whatever reason, that country um, has been calling to me for years and years and years and um and I'm I feel like when I went there it was there, there were moments where I was so moved by things that <laughs> it's just kind of beside myself it was one of the happiest you know eight days of my life and I intend to go back
1: so what did you um, do what did you you get off the plane in Reykjavik and then like what do you do
2: well so you get off to the airports in Keflavik um which is South of Reykjavik, and it's in a like a lava field. I mean, you um, if you've ever been to Hawaii, like the Big Island, Hawaii, like on the on the Kona side, it, it looks a lot like that. It's just this black volcanic rock everywhere. And um, and the weird thing though is that you know because it's so far north, you don't have the lush vegetation of Hawaii that you usually associate with volcanoes. If you've been the, if you've been to Hawaii but it has um, this moss covering it. So it's this really interesting sort of soft, greenish-bluish moss um, covering this volcanic rock. And so you get off a plane and you you drive, and it takes about maybe 45 minutes to get into into the city. Um, And, uh, you know, the city is small. The whole island, you know, the population of Iceland is about 320,000 people, And the, um, you know, most of the people live in Reykjavik, um, but, uh, once you get into town, it's, it's really easy to figure out. It's a real, uh, walkable city. It's really, you know, once you've sort of located the main roads, you've kind of seen it all to some degree. And, uh, so we went into Reykjavik and wandered around in sort of a, uh, jet lag days, but then we went to, um like the first day we were there, we decided to go to this place called the Blue Lagoon, which is a massive uh, geothermal lake um, that's connected to a hydroelectric plant. And people go there and just soak in this gigantic, imagine just a vast hot tub that's kind of what you're in, and there's this white silica mud that you rub on your face and on your skin, and uh, you just soak there for hours. And uh, it's one of the most relaxing things that i've ever done and it was it was awesome and then and, and just like soaking in the water and listening to all these other you know, like languages around you like people speaking in russian and you hear british accents and italian and it's just it icelanders and uh it was it was so amazing but yeah. we spent about yeah i mean we took like our trip we we spent uh kind of half of it in the city um you know, doing things like going to museums and going to coffee and and uh, wandering around, and then half of it in the countryside. So we went. We took a couple. Or we took like three day trips. We took one to um, this place called Vík, which is in the southern part of the island, uh, where you can watch puffins uh, flying from the cliff perches to um, out to the sea, um, and then in, it has a black volcanic sand beach. Uh, and then we also went uh, up to this peninsula called Snipelesness, which was so otherworldly. It was like being on another planet. And it was just gorgeous. And saw a lot of waterfalls and sheep. And you know that doesn't sound exciting on the surface of it, but once you're in that landscape, and it just goes on forever, and it's so striking. Oh, uh, it was. It's. it's just so incredible and we drove around listening to sigaros the whole time i was gonna say perfect (laughs) yeah it's perfect like you 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 understand sigaros in a way that you don't like when you're listening to it say in your hometown in the united states like you see the the volcanic landscape you see like steam rising from mysterious places in the hills and and you listen to this music and it all fits together so beautifully
1: well, and it's like uh it's like the soundtrack for like middle earth or something you know it's it's other,
2: oh yeah, yeah, it totally feels like middle Earth and parts of it you're yeah,
1: so where do you stay yeah. like what do you like when you're up on this like remote peninsula like is there a hotel up there, are you camping, or what's the deal?
2: Well, it was a day trip, so we you know we drove out there in the morning and got back by night it doesn't it didn't take too long to get there from the city um we stayed in a hotel in in Reykjavik. Um, but you can do uh, what's called the ring road, which you, you basically drive around the whole island, and it takes about a week. Um, and you stop um, at places and spend the night at little inns. One one place we went when we were up in this Snæfellsnes Peninsula, like we drove out to the end of this peninsula, and there's a tiny little cafe, um, uh, uh, like right sort of next to the beach. And we went and walked down this little tiny dirt path to the cafe and got um, waffles and just ate waffles and watched the ocean. And it was amazing. <laughs> uh, it's,
1: a good, it's a good combination, you know? Oh, uh, it's so fantastic. Yeah. So so now, like, is there, like, I mean, because this is, in imagining Iceland, you know, I can't, I can't imagine that there's any crime. I mean, I guess there must be some crime. But, I mean, you, you obviously felt extremely safe there. And it just seems like such well, a, it, seems, they, it seems like a civil society, but I don't want to like I don't want to be silly about it, you know.
2: Well, they had a huge watch heist recently. There was a there were a number of watches stolen from the uh, the watch shop on uh, the main drag in Reykjavik. So, uh, oh yes, there's crime. There is, but, but <laughs> I mean, like no, the, no. no I'm just, I mean, you know, it, it is the people there are incredibly kind and and warm, um, and uh, we yeah everyone we met was so um so wonderful I, just, I don't know and you know they're putting on their best face too because their economy collapsed and so they realized that tourism is one of the things that they can really draw people in and have them spend their money which sure you know it worked on us but um but yeah overall like the the character the icelandic character is just um very progressive they um I mean, they're, they're incredibly liberal and, um, uh, have just, uh, sort of these wonderful values and are very tolerant and, uh, yeah, it's, it was, it was super, but yeah, very low crime, high literacy.
1: Sounds great. I think I want to move. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Oh, I totally wanted to move there after, after I was there. We're plotting on how to figure out how to get there more
1: often, but. Well, so now what about this typewriter? Because, like, I don't know typewriters all that well. Like, is it a special kind of manual typewriter that was manufactured there? Is that?
2: Yeah, yeah, it was. So the thing about the Icelandic language is there are a number of characters that don't exist in English. So there's this, um, there's something that looks like, um, like a capital P. Uh, and There's something that looks like a D with a, with a line through it. And then there's the A-E combo vowel. Um, and then uh, another thing that looks sort of like a P, um, and these make, you know, sounds in the Icelandic language that are incredibly hard to replicate uh, for an English speaker. Um, so the, these, uh, these, these, you know, characters are are on the keyboard of this typewriter. So that's what that's sort of what makes it unique.
1: And, or do you use it, or is it just kind of like a museum piece in your house?
2: It's basically a museum piece in
1: my house. Yeah. Okay, okay. Because I was like, yeah. so, some writers, I mean, that like gets fewer and fewer these days. You know, so they still work on a manual typewriter as um, yeah. like some sort of romantic affectation. But I, like, when I first started, just because I feel like I've made like every mistake that a writer can make, or I've done every, I've done everything that a writer, like cliched thing that a writer can do, I, I got a manual typewriter, thinking that's what I would do, and uh, yeah. I, I, of course, have been working on like word processors and computers. And oh yeah, it's just so much less efficient, you know. Especially when it comes to like, yeah. deleting stuff. And, you know,
2: like, yeah, it's hard, but it's it, there's something really also just very cool about seeing a, a page that you've typed on a manual typewriter.
1: Yeah, it, it feels it feels really beautiful. It does, and it also makes you. I mean, there's something to be said for having to really concentrate and try not to make too many mistakes. Do you know what I'm saying? It like yeah. it forces you to focus. But I just. I got frustrated with it, you know, and I, I think yeah. I, I used it for like a a month. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think
2: yeah, I think it can be da- like I I've sort of I'm writing something now where I'm I'm writing it longhand. I'm writing it in a in a Moleskine notebook, folio sized notebook, and so I think it's good to force yourself in, into a place where you you have to concentrate, or you add another level of work to it. That, you know, I'm going to have to transcribe this thing into a computer at some point. Um, And so you build in these sort of difficulties that mean that you're, you know, structurally required to spend more time with the manuscript.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like, do you feel like you permit yourself? I mean, obviously, you're you're talking about, like, raising your level of concentration when you're writing longhand. But, like, I've read of writers who write early drafts longhand, and they feel like that particular act, uh, you know, it's a little bit it's a little bit more informal than typing and that it, it, you know, creatively they find it, it's more of a permissive exercise than sitting there. You know what I'm saying? Like it allows them more, more creative freedom to write longhand and it just goes better. Like, is that something that you find or?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I definitely feel like it, um, you know, being able to draw lines around things or, um, just scribble something out, um, it gives you sort of a record of what you've been doing with it, you know? And whereas, you know, if you delete a word or you move something in a word document that the, the movement itself becomes invisible because it just ends up in the place you wanted it to go. Right. Um, but when you look back on it, you know, on a, on a handwritten manuscript, you see, okay, at this point I decided to move this here and I think it, it adds, you know, more depth and, uh, more, uh, I don't know, some more archaeology to the, to the whole
1: process. Well, that and it also prevents you from screwing it up. I mean, like, that's something I really worry about, because I do, you know, I write using, uh, I use Scrivener, but it's just, you know, essentially a word processing yeah. software, but it's right. like, you know, unless you're tracking your changes, um, which can be tedious in its own right to try to, you know, go yeah. through, but it's, uh, you know, there, there's a danger that if you're in the wrong frame of mind when you're noodling with, uh, you know, something that you're working on, you know, you can screw it up pretty easily, you know, and permanently. Well,
2: you can't go back, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can't reverse so well, yeah.
1: So, is this the first time that you've ever you're working on a novel or is it a short story collection or what is it that you're working on longhand now?
2: Um, yeah, it's a novel.
1: Okay. Yeah. Is this is and is this new to be writing longhand in an early draft or is this something that you have done in the past?
2: No, well? I no, I mean, I've done it before. I mean, I used I mean, this sort of goes back to when I would write on the bus as a kid, um, on yellow legal pads, um, which, you know, when I was in, I guess, sixth grade, I, I was in that sort of zone where I would, you know, write every day on the bus and, uh, and it was really, uh, like grounding to me. And, and like, I didn't realize it at the time that I was writing a novel, but I guess that's what it was. Uh, in hindsight, it was kind of a series of blank stories or more like chapters, but um, yeah I mean I, I it's I figure that uh, I wanted to um, spend less time on the computer with this this one than I did with the last one.
1: Do you find the internet a distraction on a computer, or are you able to tune
2: yeah, it? definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean the fact that you're that a paper notebook doesn 't come with a web browser is a big plus. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I find myself, like, it, it's really strange, like, when you're conscious of it, where you're, like, sitting there and you're saying, I'm going to focus on the book. And then all of a sudden, you'll kind of, like, lose uh, awareness. And all of a sudden, yeah. I'll just be like, I'll, I'll have my internet browser open. And I won't even remember how I got there. I'll be like, what in the hell just happened? You know what I'm saying? It's a little frightening. It's a little frightening. Yeah. A little frightening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so how about the 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 new book? I mean, like, I've been reading reviews of it. And, uh you know I see the word like weird or like you know extremely unique like when somebody calls uh, you, you know something that you've written like strange or weird or uses those kinds of descriptors um, like how does that how does that feel like do you, do you take it as like a badge of honor or does it feel sort of strange because it seems totally normal to you or you know what I'm saying
2: well I, I, I accept those terms as total um, compliments I mean I and I always have it's like the that, I mean that's the idea. I love things that are weird. I love things that are unusual and strange and uncanny and um that when I was in kindergarten I remember this girl coming up to me and telling me that I was weird and I honestly didn't know that she was insulting me. Like I thought that she was paying me a compliment. Like 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 sincerely. And I remember saying, "Oh, thanks." And like, you know, and she got this really weird look on her face. Um so I mean, I've always loved, you know, weirdness. Like it just the best stuff in the world so yeah i take it as high praise
1: so okay and so when you say like you were you know this girl in school called you weird like were you like what kind of kid were you
2: um yeah i guess that was weird uh, <laughs> i mean i i uh what kind
1: of kid well, like what age are you talking about? i don't know you, you were talking about sixth grade and riding on the bus i mean like just like what what were you wearing like were you visually weird or were you just like behaviorally weird
2: well i wasn't I wasn't ever, well, I get okay, so I guess over, <sighs> as a kid, I was always, I went to a very small school, so I went to a, a, a rural grade school, so there were no more than like 24 kids in my class at any given time through eighth grade, oh, wow. so we, we all knew each other really well, and like all the kids knew sort of everybody else and knew all their secrets, and it was just very sort of insular. And um, I was always very popular in my class, and people liked me, and I was always entertaining people. Um, and I never felt sort of ostracized or not too badly. Um, I would really sucked at sports, and that was sort of the big mark against me. Um, but, you well, know, could I, you, could, I Could you
1: even have teams in a school that small? Like, what was your. Like, what sports well, did you have?
2: <laughs> it's not like you had a football like Well, of- here is- yeah. Well, it, it, true. So we had, we did have so- like there were soccer team, like we played soccer. And actually when I was in, um, seventh grade, uh, we got enough guys together to get a basketball team. Right. And so I played basketball in seventh grade and I hated it. It was horrible. Like no one on my team would pass to me and people like were constantly making fun of me and my lack of basketball skills. And so then eighth grade rolled around and, um uh, and these guys, I remember at one point, these guys came up to me and they said, "said Hey Ryan, you know we want to we want to get the basketball team together this year, but we need one more guy, and uh, we you want to join?" And so I remember this delicious moment where I like looked at these guys and I said, "You know what? You guys were complete assholes to me last year. You never passed to me, and you made fun of me. So this year, no one gets to play basketball." And it was just, and, and it worked. So it told, yeah, that we didn't have a team.
1: Wow, you just yeah. put, you put the hammer down. That was it.
2: Yeah, I did. I like I like denied everybody their basketball fun. Are you still there? <laughs> yeah. I am yeah. getting weird beeps. Oh, that's right. Um yeah. Uh yeah, I and I, and I, I like single-handedly destroyed the Conway uh, Middle School 8th grade basketball dreams of that year. So that was quite uh quite satisfactory.
1: To me. Yeah, it's like you had
2: VT. <laughs> apart from my like gloating about bad athletic experiences no I mean I guess as a kid you know going to uh, you know a, a small school and then when I went to high school I um, there's suddenly a lot more people around and, and um, I you know didn't do sports but I did debate and I um, uh, was involved in student government a lot and uh, was elected you know student body president when I was a senior and um, and I, I guess my thing, my MO in high school was always to, to like broaden, um, my peer group to include as many different kinds of people as possible. Um, like that was a, it so con- was I, like
1: a conscious decision. Like you actually had a strategy.
2: Yeah, I totally had a strategy. I totally had like this, and, and you know where it came from and it like sounds really genius. But it came from watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off that movie. Yeah, and I remember I remember watching that and thinking, Wow, okay, that guy is like the most popular person in school because everybody likes him, not just one group. And so I like I like set out to like befriend people who are on the fringe. And so I like hung out with the sort of the metalheads and the. Um, and I was also writing sports stories for a local weekly newspaper. Uh, so I hung out with the jocks, and I, you know, I would write stories and interview them, and and would hang out with pretty much anybody. And I had this really diverse group of friends, and and I was always sort of advocating for acceptance among different groups.
1: Yeah, and, uh, that's actually like really interesting. Like Ferris Bueller was a social genius, you know? <laughs> like yeah, he was. Uh, he was like the ultimate, like you know, uh, master of you know the entire you know, the entire range of people. I, yeah. I never thought of it that way, but I think maybe, maybe subconsciously that had a similar effect on me because that movie was big for me too, you know?
2: Yeah. It's a great movie, but like, I remember thinking like, you know, I like whenever I'd see somebody who was like really on the sidelines or like really being excluded, my impulse would be to reach out to that person and try to pull them in and get them sort of connected with other friends. And um, you know i was sort of an average student in a lot of ways i was you know um i was you know obviously spotted as being a good writer but like in a lot of other subjects like math and science it was just like horrible um but uh i think that was kind of my proudest achievement about high school was just being able to um make people who didn't feel cool feel a little bit cooler
1: Wow, Well, that's actually that's that's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that no, that's, that that's interesting and it's like a it's an interesting level of like social awareness that I, I think a lot of people in high school don't necessarily have, you know, or they're too frightened or like uh you know, they're they're, they're clinging too tightly to their small little group hoping for some sort of safety zone and you know to venture right. out, you know, seems just uh untenable, you know. Right. So you mentioned that you were writing for a sports weekly in high school. Like that's a little bit unusual. I mean when you were out, you were writing for an actual paper or was it the school paper?
2: No, it was an actual paper. It was my home it was a weekly newspaper in my hometown called the Skagit Argus. And uh yeah, I, I wrote uh sports stories for them covering high school games, uh, from when I was a sophomore through my senior year. And uh it was great. It was a perfect uh high school job for me. I mean, it paid just enough money to like be able to go out to movies and and eat junk food and uh, drive around my beater car uh, and then it also like it was I mean it was writing for you know for my job and uh, I would also I also took pictures to, um, did a lot of photography and so I would you know go to the games and uh, you know stand on the sideline with my camera and take pictures and it was a great way to experience that you know in high school and. Um I, I learned a lot.
1: I was going to say job. do you I mean, I mean, do you have did you have a mentor? Did you have anybody who was teaching you stuff or was it just sort of
2: like, Yeah, I mean I had I had an editor um a guy named Tony Flynn who um was uh he, he taught me some real foundational things. I mean like in, in the thing is, is I I think he maybe like spent probably like I don't know half an hour or an hour with me talking about like you know how to write a sports story, and then he kind of let me loose. But the stuff that he that he told me was like really um, just stuff that I use today. I mean, for one, like okay, so there, like it's all about verbs in a sports story, right? I mean, you have to really concentrate on your verbs and make sure that you never are, are being passive. It, everything has to be active. Never use to be verbs. Um, also, adverbs. Uh, don't look at adverbs as a way to spice up your verb. Adverbs are, are redundant most of the time and uh, you shouldn't trust them too much. And that was another thing. And also, like, give the information that's most vital um, at the very beginning and don't hold out information from a reader. Like, don't think that you're being more mysterious by holding something back. Um, and just, like, those kind of things, uh, like, I, I... were totally, like, laid a foundation for me. and And just... You know, in cutting like unnecessary verbiage and and knowing when I was, you know, writing something that sounded pretentious. I mean, just um, just those kinds of lessons were really valuable to me.
1: Sure. Now, when you were in, uh, when you were doing all this, like in in high school, uh, you know, were you dating as well, or were you kind of like uh, shy with girls, or like how did that work? No, especially I, in a small school, no, a small I, school, you know.
2: Well, it was a I mean it was a triple A school. I mean I, I had a, a few girlfriends. I was um you know, went out with the captain of the cheerleading squad and was ASB president and all that, I guess. So
0: uh, you,
1: you basically went out with like the, the Sloane Peterson of your high school? Is that right? Or
2: I don't know. Who's Sloan Peterson? I not she Ferris, is she's Ferris Bueller's girlfriend?
1: <laughs> or no, is it Sloane Yeah. Sloan something else? I think I think that was her last name. But.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I guess. <laughs> In theory, yeah, in theory.
1: Um, okay, and so then, what about college? Where'd you go from from there?
2: I went to the Evergreen State College in Olympia, and uh, I, the thing I tell people, like when they ask about college, is that uh, Nirvana released an album every year that I was in college. So I got there right as Nevermind came out, and Nirvana were from Olympia, so um, it was kind of like a local band getting huge. Um, and uh, I've been doing a lot, of actually, reminiscing about Evergreen with my wife recently. That's where we met, and um, it uh, yeah, it was a, it was a really wonderful place to go to school as an undergrad. And the more I talk to other people and they hear about their college experiences, the more I realize how unique it was. I mean, well, it was.
1: What made it so unique?
2: Well, it was just culturally on fire. I mean, there's the whole. Um, like music was unbelievable like just the, the bands that would come through town were so phenomenal and the bands that were like local were so great I remember one weekend I saw like 15 local bands and none of them were irredeemably bad and most of them like were really good and uh, with that with that music the music was sort of the uh, like the bottom layer of all sorts of really interesting culture going on I mean it was when uh you know different sort of cultural identity movements were coming into their own, the riot girls started in Olympia, and that was like feminism was um morphing in this really fascinating kind of punk rock way um the uh it was just really um uh interesting like there was always something uh like a film to see there was a great you know there were a couple of really great theaters that showed uh, independent art house cinema. There were, um, uh, fantastic music stores, really good bookstores. Uh, you name it. I mean, it was just sort of the, the, a place to be if you wanted to be, um, immersed in a creative environment.
1: Oh, interesting. You met your wife there? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like how, like right when you got there or was this like late in college?
2: Well, no, sort of, uh, second year, I guess. Um, and she was more into the sciences than I, and I was more into the humanities and art. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, we met when we were at Evergreen. How did you meet? Uh, through like mutual friends, kind of thing. Okay, okay. I didn't yeah. know if it was
1: like at a concert or something like that. No, no. Um, okay, well, so when you said you were in the arts and humanities, like, did you major? Were you knowing at that point that you were going to pursue writing, or were
2: you- Yeah. I mean, I knew, well, I mean, I had a band when I was, I started a band like as soon as I got to college, and uh, actually started a band with the guy who designed the cover of Blueprints of the Afterlife, um, which is a kind of a really closing of the circle kind of thing. Um, anyway, but uh, I was in a band for like three years, and uh, but there reached a point when I was a sophomore when I decided to really. Um, seriously pursue my writing as a grown-up as opposed to doing it as a kid you know and when I decided that I realized how much I didn't know about it like how much I like how hard it was to describe a character or how to make a sentence sound elegant you know because my sentences were sounding really clunky and 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 you know trying to get a rhythm into the prose and um so it was about my sophomore year that I really started to concentrate on writing and Um, started writing a novel that ended up taking about five years of time overall. Um, But the cool thing about Evergreen is that um, being a progressive college, a liberal arts college you can design much of your own curriculum. So I was able to um, make my academic study revolve around writing this novel. And um, I had a couple faculty who sponsored me and and who I would you know submit work to and get feedback on it and and then I was also in a couple of writing workshops, and so by the end i you know most of my credits were in creative writing
1: hmm.
2: at the end of um, at the end of evergreen
1: so when you say that okay, so you had a band like what do you, you play the guitar?
2: Yeah, I played the guitar and sang,
1: "Oh wow, you can oh, uh, you can sing
2: by sang, I mean yelled, basically, yeah, it was not a very good singer
1: um so when when you <laughs> say, okay, and then by your sophomore year, you're transitioning to writing. And what, yeah. I, what I'm curious about is like, you know, what, do you have a sense of why, you know what I'm saying? Like when you like what was it that made you say to yourself, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to switch my, my focus and place a lot more emphasis on writing and move away from music. Like what, do you know what prompted the decision or was it just kind of instinctive? Did you just have a sense of your talents and decide that this is where you were stronger or like what
2: was Well, it? I mean, I just uh, it was kind of like, I had to reach a point where I, I looked I I kind of faced the kid who had been riding on the bus and I thought, okay, am I going to tell that kid who, you know, my part of myself that I'm just going to not ride anymore and that I'm going to kind of give up or am I going to like follow through? Am I going to really follow through on the commitment I made when I was young and, and really do it for real? Um, And I decided that I would, and I think the real pivotal decision point for me came when I had a conversation with myself where I asked whether, you know, if if somehow through some sort of magical way, I knew that nothing I ever wrote would ever get published, would I still do it? And when I was able to say yes, I would definitely still do it. That's when I think my writing started to get serious. And when I decided I'm going to do this regardless of whether anyone ever pays attention to it at all, because it inherently is worth doing. And I think that decision led to me being able to create work that other people eventually were interested in reading.
1: Hmm. And and so when you say like, because I think that's, I think that's important. And it's like, you know, it's like the old, uh, the old line about if you want to find out if you're a writer, try to do something else. And if you still, if you're still writing, then that's, that's how you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah if you can't, yeah. if you can't not do it then you're pretty much screwed, and that's just the way yeah. it's going to be but um do you when you say that there's like inherent value in it um, and you know if nobody was was reading your stuff or you know it wasn't getting anywhere but you, you you would still do it and still find uh value in it like what is the value? do you know what I'm saying? Do you know clearly what it is that writing brings you in your life uh, aside from you know commercial pursuits or business pursuits or however you want to put it?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, it's fun. I mean, <laughs> that's what it sort of breaks down to. And so, I mean, it, it's fun to do. I enjoy creating a world and creating characters in it. Um, I think it's really interesting and you sort of, uh, discover things and you figure out, you know, you surprise yourself with it. I think that that's, it's maybe a simplistic answer, but I think that's really what it boils down to is that it's that I just so enjoy doing it.
1: And you don't, I mean like, so when you're writing a book and you know, I I don't think it's a hundred percent easy for anyone uh, to say the least, but I mean like it, it is still a struggle. I mean it's, it's, it's fun, but is that fun mixed with pain? I mean, or do you not feel pain when you're working creatively?
2: No, I mean it's, there there are times when it's harder to write than other times. Um, but the joy that you get from having endured that is why you endure it you know so you um and there are times when you know you're, the writing's not coming as as swiftly as you might like but there's uh, there are reasons for that i mean there's like your subconscious is, is gathering its forces a lot of times and i think that's you know we run into when we talk about creative block or writer's block that's what we're really talking about is this relationship with the subconscious and, and how to manage it and how to manage our expectations around it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's an effort and so it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, but it's rewarding. It's incredibly rewarding. Um, and, uh, it's, I don't know. i am the kind of person who really feels committed to things and I, and it, you know, part of the pleasure of it is the fact that, that I've been committed to it for as
1: long as I have. Well, and you said, you know, going back to like your childhood, you made some sort of promise to yourself or you set some kind of course. Like, did you, do you have like a tangible memory of being in sixth grade or whatever it was and saying to yourself, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to write books?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I started, it, it, there are a couple points where that where it became very conscious. Like, so the first was, um, you know, I was selected for this thing called the young authors conference when I was in first grade, when I was six years old. And, um, it was basically a conference that happened at uh, Seattle Pacific University. And I went down there for a day, and all these other kids went down there. And they, you get in a room with a dozen children, and everyone reads their story, right? And it's just like any other writing workshop I've ever been in. And I went to this conference, and I was a little nervous. I wrote a story about um, a lion, about becoming friends with a lion, and so, after I read my story, um, the teacher asked everybody whose story was the, their favorite, and mine was voted the unanimous favorite. Like every kid in the class said that mine was the best story. And so, it was this, and, and like that moment was when I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Isn't I'm going to write books.
1: Isn't it strange? And, though? I mean, not to interrupt, but it's just it, it just sure. strikes me that like you know, with almost every writer I've ever talked to, there was some similar moment and usually related to school somehow where yeah. a teacher pulled you aside or somebody said, do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like you, like it really, yeah. it really matters to a young person when somebody says you're good at this, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, Oh,
2: it totally matters. It totally matters. Yeah. It matters a lot. And so, yeah, when it, so after that, I mean, after, then I was in, I went back to that conference a couple of times, but also went to, um, writing camps, young authors camp, which was amazing. I loved it. And then, um, Uh, But uh, there was a point, there's this time that I call um, the epiphany in the field. And it was like, I, I must have been like maybe 11 years old, maybe 12. And I remember being in this field by my house. And I just was standing there and I realized, I thought, okay, if I really commit to this and I really take, like do everything I need to do, like as a kid, um and read as much as i can and learn as much about writing as i can that by the time i'm a grown up i'm going to be able to do it really really well and and so i like had this moment where like yeah i can totally seize this opportunity to, to develop this in myself and so from then on you know things like working for this for the newspaper or you know various other writing camps or things that i did you know fell into that and so every step of my education, I always gravitated toward writing programs and learning about writing. And I was also reading just a ton, um, which is the best education of all for for writing.
1: Um, and you, so, is it? A, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, what were you reading? Like, I mean, generally, did you have like something? Were, were you in uh, like horror fiction or science fiction as a kid, or was it? You know, were you drawn mostly to literary? Like, what, what were you? You know, what were what were big books for you as a child?
2: Yeah, so, it was a good, so yeah, science fiction was really huge to me, um, like just the whole genre uh, through, say, um, you know, eighth grade. Uh, I got into Stephen King uh, pretty early, like maybe when I was around 11, um, and uh, just absorbed everything he wrote. I, I read him religiously and, um, like, read The Stand um, like three times. Uh, by the time I was in eighth grade, I loved that book to death. I just thought it was the most incredible book ever.
1: Have you reread it, um, have you re-read it since then? Like, have you ever? Like, no,
2: I haven't. No. I, I stopped reading Stephen King when I was like 14 and never kind of went back to him. Although I did read his, his memoir about writing. I liked that a lot. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I read like a lot of science fiction and a lot wow. of horror and, uh, Genre fiction, basically, but around eighth grade, there was this period where, within like a month or two, I read um, Catcher in the Rye and Dante's Inferno, and uh, like I remember that period being something really pivotal. Like, and, and also like Tom Sawyer and and some pulpy like sci-fi stuff, and it was really all mixing in together. And I remember thinking like that there was a lot more out there that I wanted to be like, wanted to know about. And so I had a really fortunate um, situation in high school where a history teacher of mine uh, who uh, owned a used bookstore in my t- hometown, um, the same store that I worked at when I found the Iceland book, uh, sort of took me under his wing and uh, really introduced me to literature and uh he was a guy named Dave Cornelius uh he still owns the bookstore uh with his wife um it's called Easton's Books in Mount Vernon, Washington and he um i showed him some of my stories i was i must have been in like this was my sophomore year of high school and i showed him a couple stories that i'd written or poems actually I, yeah there were a couple really bad poems and i i you know because i knew that he was really into into literature and so i wanted to see what he thought and he called me up to his desk, and uh, he I sat down, and he said, "Well, I read your poems and, and, uh, and there's a sort of a pause and then he said he goes ryan i don't think you belong in high school. I think you belong in a cafe in San Francisco where you can smoke pot and talk about poetry
0: <laughs> and
2: like that that like moment like was another one of those life changing things that people say to you, you know." And so he immediately had my complete trust, Right. and he was he was my mentor throughout high school. And that's and what you would, say, that's you know, what
1: you say to a kid, right there. That's textbook.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. And so, and so I, he you know introduced me to Kafka and Jerzy Kaczynski and and um, you know Eastern European avant-garde stuff and uh, the Beats, uh, you know all the Beat like you know Kerouac and Ginsberg, et cetera. Um, and we would just have conversations about literature, and I would go down to his his store on Sundays occasionally when he, was, when, he when they were closed, and he was just like you know shelving books, and uh, he would let me in, and he would we would just have coffee and talk about books, talk about writing and literature, and so that to me was the was a great door opening into you know thinking that I could do something like this, like this, I can be part of this. Because you know, growing up in a in a rural environment, there were I, I didn't know anybody who'd written a book. There was it wasn't like you know, it, it seemed like such a far fetched thing for someone to do. It seemed like something like it happened on Mount Olympus. It wasn't something that you know, just some guy who lived on seven acres with a dozen sheep could do. Did you
1: have um, sheep?
2: Yeah, my family had sheep. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, we had sheep and pigs, and for a while we had chickens too.
1: Just like, the, you, so you, you, you were farming family.
2: Well, we you couldn't really call us a farming family because the real farming families in my community had like thousands and thousands of acres of industrial farm production. And so we weren't ever considered, like we never considered what we had a farm <laughs> right. so we had a big garden and we had some animals, but a lot of people just had, you know, some animals. It wasn't like you wouldn't call them a farmer.
1: So what did you do with them? Like, what are you what are you doing with these sheep? Are you like making wool, or what was happening?
2: You uh, you kill them and then you eat them. Oh, okay, okay. So that was, that's what was happening. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we yeah, we like they we took their wool too, and uh, and I, my mom made some sort of you know half baked sort of uh, attempts at at knitting sweaters. I think, but and I hope she doesn't hear this. Did you have ever... uh, their wonderful sweaters
1: but... <laughs> did you ever have to slaughter an animal?
2: <laughs> no I never did um, we hire people to come out and do that and they come out and they what what you, what basically happens is that you um like for the sheep or the sheep or pigs you hire um, a company to come out and they bring out a truck and um, they shoot the they shoot the animal in the head um, and you Oftentimes you have to supply the ammunition. That was like one of the things you had to do. You had to buy bullets, and so then they they shoot the animal, and then they string it up by its hind legs, and uh, slice it down the middle through the through its gut, and then all its innards you know spill out onto the ground, and they leave the guts on at the property, and then they haul away the rest of the carcass to a um, a a processing plant, and then say a week later you get these. Um, really nicely wrapped white packages of meat that are in your freezer.
1: Okay, so wait a minute, wait a minute. They just leave the guts on your lawn?
2: Well, it was in our our field, yeah. Yeah, they they just leave the guts.
1: And you just leave it there, and the other animals eat it or whatever happens?
2: Yeah, I can't really remember what happened. I think I avoided it.
1: Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I would have avoided that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of a rural, you know, it's a, you know, they didn't, because they have to disp- they they would otherwise have to dispose of it themselves, and so they just you know, they just slice the animal open and leave the leave the guts um, in the field, and then they take the animal away.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, just to loop back, so we can continue. I want to continue, kind of like the the narrative of your life. Like uh, you're you're in, you're in college, and it's a great time at Evergreen. You meet your future wife. You're in a band. I mean, it sounds kind of ideal. And then uh, you decide to focus on writing. You write that novel for five years. And yeah. what happens with that novel? Was that like your your sort of like trial run that didn't wind up getting published? Or did it get published?
2: Yeah, and it was the trial run that didn't get published. Um, um One of several, actually. Um, so, yeah, okay. So after Evergreen, uh, so I had that novel. I graduated. I started working. At Orca Books in Olympia, which was a sort of a really great extension of my education, um, and uh, then I applied a year after I was let's see, a year out of Evergreen, I um, applied to Bennington to the low residency MFA program uh, in Vermont, and so uh, I got accepted there and started going to Bennington in the winter of ninety-seven.
1: Okay, so wait, you, so, so you moved across the country.
2: No, so it's a low residency program, oh, okay. which means that you can you go out there twice a year, right. and then the rest of the time you you write and send your work to your advisor remotely. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, and that was fantastic. That was a really, I I loved that experience. I like it was so fun every aspect of it. Um, and uh, so I did that for two years, and while I was there. Um, I needed a day job, and so, in the um, spring of ninety eight I started working uh for Amazon when they were a uh, just a book store. They just only sold books over the internet, and um, I started working in the customer service department uh they 're answering phones and email from
1: wow. customers so wait in ninety eight they only sold books
2: yeah as re- yeah so as when recently. I got there wow. Yeah, so I got there in April. I started there in like April of 98, and it was only a bookstore. And within the t- two years that I was there, they launched uh, music and video and um, and also their auctions shop, so their sort of third-party seller platform. Uh, by, and that was by 2000. So, um, yeah, so I was there at a real kind of interesting time for that
1: company. Did you get stock options or anything like that? Like, were you that? Yeah, I did. So you were yeah. that early, and like, did that would that pay off for you?
2: Yeah, it, it did. I mean, not a huge amount, but it was it was you know something I didn't expect, and it was nice. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, so I worked, and, and that started you know working at Amazon started like a ten year dot com career, so which is a whole a huge saga. Like I, there basically, I, I worked for. I don't know, like half a dozen companies and, you know, got laid off like four times and, and, uh, was on unemployment and then was getting jobs back. I ended up going back to Amazon for three years starting in 2007 and was an editor there on the DVD team and just had like all these experiences in sort of the tech world. Right. And while I was doing that, I was also writing. So was, you know, I'd get up early in the morning or write on my lunch break and, so I was trying to maintain these sort of two careers at the same time. Um, and then in uh, 2006, my first collection came out. 2009, my first novel. And then, and then now, um, like I stopped working in that world in um, 2009. And uh, so now I'm, I'm writing and teaching uh, in a low residency program, Goddard College,
1: well, now, okay. So uh, when you when you were doing the two things at once, because like I, you know, I've had conversations with the countless writers uh, over the years about this, where you're, you know, you're trying to pay the bills and you're working a day job, and then you're also uh, trying to write a novel. Like that's extremely taxing. Like I just feel like writing a novel takes so much energy and so much. Uh, you know, so much mental energy and emotional energy. Like, how do you, how did you balance that with like a full-time job? I mean, was it just that, you you know, you were young and you had no choice and you just did what you had to do? I mean, obviously that's the case, but um, like what was the did, did it affect your day job did it do you feel like the writing was diminished by the fact that you had to go to work at these dot coms during the day or you know like what what was your take on it
2: no yeah, i tried i mean I tried to not make it a war against the different parts of my life that were demanding my attention and i mean it really reached a peak in um two thousand and eight when um I had a you know my second child, my daughter um was had just been born. And, um, I was working at Expedia as a copy editor. Um, and I was also writing this novel, Blueprints of the Afterlife. And, um, I had a moment where I sort of freaked out and I thought, I thought, oh my God, like, I, I really want to write this novel and I'm not getting more than four hours of sleep a night and I have this job that I'm doing. And so I like sort of stopped, and I decided, like, okay, what am I going to do? And, like, the Raymond Carver once said that, it, like he said, because he had a really um, grueling, demanding um, day job kind of life, right? Like, he worked in a lot of places. And, and so he, the reason why he wrote stories was because he could get in and out real quick. He could, you know, spend a half an hour or 45 minutes working on a story. And so I decided, though, I, I thought, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to just declare to myself, that i that right now when my life is the most busy and hectic that it's ever been that i am going to write the most ambitious badass thing i possibly can and when i made that decision and when i sort of declared that to myself that's when i found that the writing really rose up and and to the challenge and it was like kind of a bring it on attitude and um and it worked and so uh, I wrote a lot during lunch breaks. I, I, you know, uh, it wrote late at night. I would email myself little paragraphs that I wrote during the day, and then you know, attach them to a Word doc at night. Um, wrote any time I possibly could.
1: And you didn't. find th- That's uh, interesting. I mean, like just time management wise, because I, uh, I had a similar conversation recently where it's like you know now, especially once you're a parent, because I have a I have a young daughter, and it's like, you yeah. get you get like. 30 minutes to work and you have to take it, you know, like, uh, yeah, exactly. Kind of of teach yourself to, uh, work in, in shorter bursts. And did you, did you find that like working in those little bursts and little pockets of time, uh, and doing the copying and the pasting and all that kind of stuff? Like, did, did it have any kind of like really tangible impact on the shape of the work itself? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, or the, or the way that the story was told?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, because I can't imagine it, being told any other way. So I don't know. I mean, if I had had like, you know, eight hours of uninterrupted time every day, I don't know if I would have like how it would have come out. Um, but, uh, I I really, honestly don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, even though I had these short bursts to work with, um, I still, you know, I was still always thinking about it. There was, it was always in my head, like being processed. Like, I would zone out in meetings, and I would just be there going through my novel chapter by chapter, <laughs> um, you know. And uh, so so I really, yeah, it probably did in some way, because, you know, having 35 minutes to work on something um, means that you're not going to uh, write out a huge, long chapter. But on the other hand, like having, you know, going over things over and over and over again through many revisions, you tend to wipe away those seams between sections that you've written and blend things together. So it's hard to tell.
1: Well, and then uh, as far as like the professional part of your writing career goes, you know, you obviously wrote novels uh, and short stories that didn't wind up getting published as you were kind of in your apprentice years. Uh, But when did things turn? Like you got an agent and then, you know, like how, how did that all transpire?
2: Well, it really turned with the story, the littlest Hitler, which, um, was published in the mississippi review uh and then dave eggers picked it up uh for the best american non-required reading and uh that's where things really started happening like i started to it started to become easier to get published in journals after that um and then uh yeah i got my current agent in 2004 and
1: uh and who's that
2: he what's that
1: and who's your agent
2: uh, is a guy named pj mark okay um and uh and he he was really great about uh selling the collection of stories which a uh, story collection is always a hard sell but he um was confident that he could sell it and so i ended up going with him and uh he sold that and then the novel and uh so yeah it uh i mean these things tend to snowball you know you you they get one thing in one place, and then somebody else emails you and asks you if you have any other stories, and um, it's, it's worked out kind of organically.
1: So, yeah, so, like, when The Littlest Hitler gets published by the Mississippi Review and then Dave Eggers likes it and he picks it up for the uh, anthology, like, you, you obviously had other stories in the kitty kind of waiting, so when people came knocking at that point, you were ready. Is that correct? right.
2: Yeah, exactly. I was always writing. I mean, the thing is, like, I the thing that I know that I can control is that I can always be writing. I can always like finish a product. You know, I can always have something going on or something in process, and I can always be doing another draft. And, and so that's the thing that I can control. Like a lot of the publishing stuff, you know, apart from me going out there and contacting people and bugging people, or now having my agent, you know, editor who are working with me and apart from that like a lot of that is out of my control like um so i can only the only thing i can control is writing something i think is good um and hopefully that that finds its readers
1: well it looks like it's i mean it looks like you're on a a bit of a roll here you know three books in what like the last what seven years six years
2: i guess six yeah
1: that's a pretty good string right
2: I hope so, yeah,
1: and then what about uh what about the future the book you're working on now like is that uh do you have an uh, a contract on that I mean, is it like a option or whatever?
2: no, it's too early, too early for that, uh-huh. but i um yeah, I mean I'm working on a few things um yeah, everything's kind of up in the air right now, a little bit, but i'm I'm continuing to work on stuff all the time
1: cool well, I wish you all the best with it. It's been fun talking. And uh, the book is called Blueprints of the Afterlife. Uh, thanks so much for talking with me, man. Thank you. Okay, folks, there it is. That's the program. That's Ryan Boudno. Go get Blueprints of the Afterlife. It's available wherever books are sold from the good people at Grove Press. Uh, if you want to find Ryan on the web, go check out blueprintsoftheafterlife.com. He's also on Twitter at Ryan Budno, And Boudno is spelled B-O-U-D-I-N-O-T. He's also got a Facebook page. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And if you want to find this program on the web, the official site is otherpeoplepod.com. You can follow the show on Twitter. Do it at other people pod the show has a Facebook presence and again if you want to email me if you want to help me name the naked woman in my wallet please send me a message at letters at other people dot com and then here's my quick pitch if you like the show and you want to support it for just 10 bucks a month please do go sign up for the nervous breakdown book club uh, just go to the nervous dot com and click on book club in the menu bar and for 10 bucks a month you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days that's less than the cost of a book and I will be interviewing the authors on this program And if you can't do that, please take two minutes to to go to iTunes, search for other people with Brad Listy, and rate and review the show. Pretty please do this. Just take two minutes, give it a good rating and a kind review. It really does help the cause, and I would be hugely grateful. So otherwise, uh, hope you enjoyed that. Hope you're doing well. Uh, How are you doing actually right now? Where are you? And what kind of state are you in psychologically speaking? Here's something helpful to remember. Okay, here goes. We're all gonna die. I don't say that to be a huge bummer either. I think it's a good thing to remember. We're in a very impermanent situation. Everything is always in flux. The very cells in your body are dying and being reborn every second. It's happening right now. So uh, please try your best to enjoy yourself. Please notice the clouds. Please do not worry about things that don't matter, like whether or not there's a naked woman in your wallet. And think about this for a second. Everything ends as a smell. I'm pretty sure that's true. I'm pretty sure that that is the final state of everything both animate and inanimate and if it's not the final state then it's close it seems like everything sublimates eventually or otherwise transforms and becomes a smell so pay attention to what you smell and remember that all smells used to be something else and now they are smells which is sort of weird but i like it because i like things that are weird do you like things that are weird